It is the beginning week of a new series through another book of the Bible. We'll be for the next five weeks in the book of Job. So regardless of your location, whether it's in our live streaming venue or one of our campuses or right here in this room, can you go ahead and take your Bibles, get them in your lap and put a finger in Job. We'll get there in a moment. Just want to make sure that you're having that right in front of you, regardless of where you are, because it's the word that does the work. I think every parent in this room, whether you have kids in your home currently or whether you are an empty nester, most parents look fondly and they reminisce with a smile about the way their kids, when they were little, would, they would always ask why. And right now I'm seeing parents in the room who are in the middle of that. You're saying, hey, were you at my house yesterday? Uh, kids just uh, have this knack, especially when they're smaller and they encounter something new and different, which is a lot when you're three and four and six. They just want to know why. In fact, just yesterday, one of our grandsons was coming out of the back door of the house uh, where we live. And uh, I'm kind of getting some stuff out of the garage, and out of the camper. I'm kind of purging through some things and just kind of... Uh, minimalizing a few things and uh he said papa why is that there i said because it's not over there he said why is the camper up i said well, i'm putting this in there he said why is the camper there and i realized this is a never-ending conversation and i have the privilege right now to be able to say go ask your parents so i did and we had a good laugh at that. Um, it's a constant with our grandkids and even when our kids were little. And you're aware of that. This kids love to ask why. They're delightfully curious. Uh, they're humorously inquisitive. They want to know. I find it striking that as we age and grow and hopefully mature, we may still ask why, but it's never as humorous. In fact, in all transparency, that little bit of humor we just experienced together may be the last bit of humor you hear for the next five weeks in this room. Because we're going to ask the question, why? It won't be about purging a garage or unloading a camper. It's going to be about things in your life, whether it's your past or present, that you still have serious questions about. In fact, I was asking myself, why does why get so serious? And it's because as we age, grow and hopefully mature, we experience an increasing amount of tragedy, suffering, consequences, injustice, evil, whether it's natural or moral. And they pile up in our life. And they cause us then to ask the why question. I mean, it is the universal question people ask whether they are a Christian or not. I call it the 
uh, global dilemma because every single person at some point asks this question, why? Let's be frank with each other, though, that it's not just a universal dilemma. It's actually very individual. It's personal. What I mean is, you ask why. I ask why. We want to know. It's not just that humanity's asking in a collective way today in this room, upstairs in the live streaming venue at our campuses. There are people, real flesh and blood, brothers and sisters who are asking why. In fact, last Tuesday, I received a call from one of our young men. He said, can we meet this week? I could tell by his voice, things weren't great. I said, how about Thursday morning? He said, that works. And I usually ask this question, can you give me a heads up on what we're going to be talking about so I can be praying and thinking about it? All he said to me in response was, just pray for me. I took that as a sign, like I'm not ready to give a preview yet. I said, I'll see you Thursday morning. We met Thursday morning. Essentially, his question to me after a few minutes of introduction about the situation was this. Why do these things happen? I looked at him. I said, are, are you aware of what we're going to be doing Sunday? He kind of chuckled and we both agreed God is working in his life and bringing him to some really important intersections. He's not alone either. In our body, there are families who have dealt with losing their house or their property suddenly due to things like a fire or a tornado or even human violence. You can ask disease about this. In our body, there are people who have been diagnosed with illnesses and sicknesses of all kinds and types, and they have all kinds of ramifications. Just ask the Gable family or Greg and Sherry Smith. Tom and Brenda Notaboom. There are women and, men, women and men of all ages who have buried their spouse before they were expecting to. You can ask Tracy Aller, Sarah Hensel, Lane Cooper, Bob DeWard. There are parents in our body who have learned to live with a limp. Mourning is a daily exercise for them because of the loss of a child. You can ask Jace or Julie Day or Craig and Stacy Stevens. A wife or a husband has to grapple with what it looks like now to be a single parent because of the adultery of a spouse. Students deal with fatalities among their classmates. Moms and dads weep and pray for a straying child. Friends grieve when depression takes its toll and one of their own commits suicide. These are real things that bombard us. They cause us to ask this penetrating question. Say it with me. Why? If you find yourself in one of those groups, if you find yourself anywhere along that spectrum, facing something similar that results in the same question, you're not alone either. Because the Old Testament book that bears the name of its main character, Job, 
It's all about why. In fact, this is the main question Job asked. Can I show it to you? It's in chapter 3. Your Bible's at that book probably. Find chapter 3 and put your eyes on verse 11, would you? Beginning in verse 11, Job asks a series of questions in one sense. In another sense, he makes a series of statements. But you'll notice that they all begin with why. This is the conclusion of his first response to all that had happened to him. We'll see that in a moment. But I love the way this first response of Job ends with him asking repeatedly, why? Follow along with me as I read to you Job 3, beginning in verse 11. Why was I not stillborn? Circle the word why every time you see it in your Bible or in your journal. Make a note of this. Verse 11, why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me and why were there breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves or with princes who had gold and who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? There the wicked cease to make trouble, and there the weary find rest. The captives are completely at rest. They do not hear a taskmaster's voice. Both small and great are there, and the slave is set free from his master. Verse 20, why is light given to one burdened with grief? And life to those whose experience is bitter, who wait for death, but it does not come and search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave. Verse 23, the final why. Circle it, would you? Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me. My groans pour out like water for the thing I feared has overtaken me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be calm. I have no rest for turmoil has come. These are staggering words. In a nutshell, we would say it appears that in these seven statements slash questions, Job is simply saying he wished he'd had never been born. Some think Job here is suicidal. I don't agree with that. I think Job has a strong commitment to see this through. I think he is thinking this, though, It'd be better if I was never here to begin with. I'm not sure if you've ever felt that way. I have a difficult time relating to words of this magnitude. So I just hope you're processing, at least beginning to process, the, the depth of his sorrow and suffering and the intensity of his emotion and feelings. Now, maybe you're wondering a couple of things. Our minds tend to work this way. 
what would cause Job to ask these questions? Like, why would he even make these interrogative statements, we'll call them? Like, what happened? The second question is, did he ever get an answer? That was my main question. It's like, okay, he's got a lot of questions and they're deep. Did he get an answer? Today, I want to try to answer those two questions. Let's tackle number one first, can we? What was it that caused Job to conclude his first response in this way? What happened? Well, Job 1 and 2, if you do a quick scan of those chapters, you'll find that there we have laid out for us what happened to Job in what I think may be a pretty short amount of time, which no doubt increased the intensity of his situation. If you look through Job 1 and 2, you find that the Lord allows the accuser to attack Job as a way to showcase and prove Job's integrity. Now, I want to say more about that issue and about the Lord allowing the accuser referred to as Satan in the text, this kind of freedom. I say more about that on the podcast. So I would encourage you, check our sermon feed Tuesday for some extra insight on Job 1 and 2. Sumerly, let me just simply say that what the accuser attacked was Job's possessions first and then his person. You may could use these words. The accuser, Satan, attacked Job's wealth and then he attacked Job's health. I've always been curious what our wealth and health theologians would say in regards to Job's one and Job 1 and 2. And here, Satan goes after it. Let me just show you a quick list of chapters 1 and 2 and the accuser's attacks. Notice in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, oxen and donkeys and servants were taken via a robbery. In verse 16, sheep and servants were taken via a fire. In verse 17 of chapter 1, camels and servants were taken via a robbery. And in verses 18 and 19, in the height of of um, destruction, his children were killed or taken via or tornado. And all of this seems to have happened within a day's time frame. Why? Because the text tells us, you can read it in chapter one, that as soon as one got news about one incident, the next one occurred immediately. Like these messengers followed back to back to back to back. Just utter devastation all of Job's possessions, thousands of his livestock, all of his children in a short amount of time. As chapter two unfolds, we find that Job still hasn't sinned or charged God foolishly. He hasn't sinned with his words. He didn't charge God or blame God. It's quite an amazing testimony, wouldn't you say? And so the accuser approaches Yahweh, again, gains freedom to attack Job's person. And this time he's stricken with body-wide boils. You see this in chapter 2, verse 7. Some have asked, well, how long did the boils last? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I can give you the minimum amount of time. According to chapter 2 in the end, maybe verse three, uh, verse 1 of 3, it seems to have been about a week so take your worst case of poison ivy and multiply it exponentially um, 
with the idea of demonic attacks. And you have some sense of what Job's going through. Demonically driven, body-wide boils for at least a week. Some say it may have lasted months. We don't know how long the book of Job covers in general. But I can guarantee you there was a week in which Job, the Bible says, sat in some kind of charcoal to try to soothe his sores, and he scraped and he scratched while all of his friends sat there and stared at him. In fact, for a week, no one said a word. So if you ever wonder what made Job write this, this um, sense of poetry in chapter 3, this poetic lament that he wished he'd never been born, what, what caused Job to write that? That's what caused it. A demonic attack upon his possessions and person in a short amount of time brought him to the place where he wished he had never been born. And his response? I've got some why questions. Incidentally, at the end of chapter 2, the Bible affirms again that Job did not charge God foolishly or sin with his words. Hold on to that thought. It'll be important in a moment. Let's see if we can tackle question two, which is, did he get an answer? Because these are serious questions. They're intense. They're deep. Did Job get an answer? In a word, yes, he got an answer. In fact, I would even say this to you. He got many answers. This is not to say they were all accurate, but they were all attempts at an answer. Now, let me see if I can give you the book of Job uh, in one simple way to put in the palm of your hand. I think this is the bulk of the book of Job. It's people trying to give an answer to his questions at the end of chapter three. So you're ever wondering like, how do we get our hands around 42 chapters? It's the first two chapters are historical devastation in his life. Chapter three is a poetic response, a lament with why being the centerpiece question and chapters four through 42 are the different approaches to those questions. So there's Job in a nutshell. In fact, can I show it to you in a graphic? I developed this graphic just for our use here to kind of help us get our hands around Job. You may want to have a picture of this for later so you can draw it in your journals. Just notice that this is kind of how the book is divided. One through three is really the earthly anguish that Job was experiencing. Uh, four through about 37 are the various approaches from his friends. And then beginning in 38, God answers. And we get heaven's perspective in that portion of Scripture, God answers Job's question. Let me walk you through this pyramid just briefly before I wrap things up today. You'll notice that in the middle section, the bulk of the book, chapters 4 through about 37, there's a number of characters. You see them listed here. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and a man named Elihu. These are all friends of Job. And between chapter 4 and about 37, what you find is that they're all giving speeches and Job's giving a response. 
Now, I'm going to give you some insight into why we chose to tackle this book in five weeks. Because if we would have gone through those chapters just by themselves, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you'd have been hearing a lot of the same thing over and over. Here's why. Because that section, it's one of Job's friends telling Job what he thinks, and then Job responds. Then it's the next friend, which would be Bill Dad. Then Job responds, and then Zophar, and then Job responds. And then that's repeated three times. So it's a series of three, we can call them speeches, you can call them three approaches. Now, interestingly, at the end of the third set of speeches, Zophar does not talk. Instead, Elihu seems to interrupt. And he gives a speech. And Job does not answer Elihu as 37 ends. Instead, God speaks beginning in 38. And here's what you're going to find interesting about those approaches. Again, I don't think all the answers are accurate, but they are attempts at an answer. And you're going to find some... Um, interesting parallels to our own attempts to answer the why question as we get into these weeks of Job. For instance, in the first bit between uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, as there's this three series back and forth, those friends take a humanly judicial approach to answering Job's questions. They think he did something wrong, so this is his condemnation. I'll say more next week about this. Job, by the way, in all frankness, as I've read through the book and just really prayed and studied through it, I think Job has somewhat of a humanly judicial perspective as well. But he doesn't think he did anything wrong, so he's expecting vindication. So I'll say more next week. I don't want to say it now. Just know that they're coming at it from a humanly judicial point of view. Elihu jumps in. He's got more of a mentally theological perspective. He relies on explanation. So Job's friends were thinking condemnation. Job's waiting for a vindication. Elihu's thinking it's all about explanation. By the way, if you read Elihu's speech, it's quite good. I'll say more about that all week three. 38 unfolds and God begins to answer. Notice the different wording there. We have approaches, but God has an answer. And as 38 unfolds, he does give the answer. By the way, it starts with somewhat of an interrogation on Job, you'll find that he's saying, who are you, Job? But as the chapters unfold, it moves more towards revelation. He's saying, Job, here's who I am. It's a beautiful set of chapters that give us God's answer to Job's questions in chapter three. So that's kind of the journey we're on. That's the hike we're on. We're gonna climb this pyramid because I do believe there is an answer to the why question. I may not know the answer that, that God will give to you, but I can give you the one he gave to Job, and we'll see how that applies to us. Now, I want to be very vulnerable with you and say, say to you that in this instance, I don't agree with the vast majority of commentators, other pastors and preachers. Most people will tell you. In fact, a lot of my good friends will tell you, yet yeah, Job, you know, God never answers Job. He just kind of tells him what he's done with creation. You kind of heard that line. And, but as I've reread and re-reread, looked at some scriptures in the New Testament, I actually think God did give Job an answer. And I want to share that with you, not today. That'll be week five. But I want to warn you. If the answer if you were promised an answer to your why questions, would you accept it if it came right out of the Bible? 
I know in this moment, in this place, you'll say, of course, Todd. But I found that sometimes the human nature is such that we say we want an answer until we get one we don't like. And then we ask for like another option. Is there multiple choice? Is there a new teacher in the house? Like, I don't like the answer I'm getting. So I want to say to you, as one of your shepherds, we love you, sheep. There's an answer coming. It's comforting. It's beautiful. But I want to warn you. It's the answer God gave Job. I think it'll be an answer that will help us. But it may not be what you're thinking. So prepare yourself for week five. Today's week one, though, and I want to just focus in on what Job did when this all started. So let's put our eyes back on the text, shall we? It's where we read a minute ago. Job 3. Here's the first thing that Job did after the incredible devastation which the Lord allowed through the accuser. After this occurred, do you see it in your text? Verse 11, it's mentioned twice. Verse 12, it's mentioned twice. Verse 16, verse 20, verse 23. Job asked why. In other words, he stayed at the table of conversation with God. I remember in college, being encouraged, told, Never to ask God why. They would often word it this way. Don't ever question God. And I think I get the spirit of that instruction. We shouldn't incriminate God's authority. We shouldn't usurp the creator, our maker. I'm, I'm down with all that. I get that. But it began to morph into this sense that you couldn't just have an honest conversation with God. You couldn't ask an honest question because they would say, don't ever ask God why. The assumption they were making that was you couldn't you couldn't ask that question honestly. They always had like an angle or it had some kind of leverage to it. You can get your way or that you were incriminating or accusing. But what if you actually could do what Job did? What if you could ask why, but yet it be said about you that you did not sin with your lips or charge God foolishly? Remember I told you to hold on that nugget? Think about it. After the two demonic attacks, the Bible records for us, I mean, it could have said a lot of things about that moment in Job's life, but the author seemed to find it poignant to say to us that Job did not sin with his words or charge God foolishly. That's a beautiful preface to chapter three in which we find Job asking some very hard questions and expressing some very deep emotion, being extremely authentic and real in front of his maker and his friends. I think the reason that's in there is to show us you can ask God why. You can ask God questions. You just can't accuse God or blame God or indict God, or convict God. But you can ask. You see, when, when we 
blame and accuse, why turns wicked. But when we ask honestly, like a little child asking his father or papa, why do you do that? We just have an honest curiosity. We're inquisitive about things we don't understand that are new to us, like a child with his father. When we do it in that fashion, why is a wise way to go. And so this week, I'm just going to urge you to stay at the table of conversation with God. Do not be afraid to ask God your honest questions. Share with him your real feelings, your genuine emotion. I would just tell you theologically, you and I both know he already knows it anyway. <laughs> and yet he delights in hearing of our dependence. Just to affirm the fact that we can ask, but we're to ask and converse in the right way. James warns us of two types of conversation with God that are improper. James talks about when we're in trials and we're being tempted and tested. He says we should ask for wisdom. So there's in, therein lies this idea that we're talking to God. We're asking for wisdom. We're sharing where we are with the Lord. And he says, but make sure you ask in faith, not doubting. So we're not to ask with a doubtful or double mind. Then in verse 13, that's in verse 6. In verse 13, he says, James 1, that we should not blame God when we're tested or in trials. In other words, we don't say it's God's fault. So, so do you hear James really affirming what Job's example shows us? That yes, we can approach God with honest questions. We can ask him for wisdom, for insight. We can ask for God's help, but we just can't blame him or doubt him. You see, as long as our questions for God are a form of conversing with God, and as long as we're not accusing God or blaming Him, then we are wise to ask. Now, I would remind you, He's not obligated to answer. Or obligated to answer in the way you want Him to answer. I believe He will. He did, Job. I can't promise you when or how, but God loves you. He loves his children. He loves to hear the prayers of his children. And I'm convinced to the searching soul who's honestly, authentically yearning for God's answer. God will give it. Sisters and brothers, when your anguish is overwhelming and you want answers, ask God honestly, not accusingly or scornfully or blamingly. But please, I urge you, ask God. That's really the gist of our take-home truth. Can I give it to you in a worded, simple way? Jot this down. This is really what I want you to do in this first week of our new series. And here's why. 
Not only is it straight from the text, this is what Job did, but this is the only way to posture your heart so that you can receive the answer in week five. When we're honest with God, when we lay our emotion on the table authentically and genuinely, it positions us and postures up and prepares us for God's answer because we're, we're kind of shedding all of our angles and corners and manipulations and we're just laying it all before God. And he has a supernatural way of working through all of that and getting us ready for his answer about here's why. So here's the take home truth. When anguish floods your life, why fills your mind? Ask God honestly. Don't accuse blamingly. Converse. Don't accuse or convict. Inquire. Don't indict. It's all about the heart posture for your maker. And I actually want to encourage you. Approach the throne of God uh, to ask for help and mercy in a time of need. That's Hebrews. So, so much of the Bible is, a, is, a, is an instruction to us to come to God. James says to draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And yet sometimes when difficult things happen, wherever they are on the spectrum, and we don't know why, and we're curious, and we're frustrated, and we're emotional, and we have a lot of thoughts in our head, we tend not to talk to God about them, but everyone else. And I want to flip that. And let's first go to God. He can handle your questions. He's not afraid of your dialogue. He's God. But let's follow his word and let's not ask blamingly or scornfully or accusingly, but by all means, let's ask our father. Like, why? God will answer.